from Car Rigs and Ingram, this is It Figures, the CRI podcast, an accounting, advisory, and industry-focused podcast for business and organization leaders, entrepreneurs, and anyone who is looking to go beyond the status quo. Hi, and welcome to the It Figures podcast for Car Rigs and Ingram, or as we refer to ourselves as CRI. And we're here today to talk about the IRS's focus on captives. Um, Yeah, really looking forward to it. My name is Scott Bailey, and I'm a partner out of our Raleigh, North Carolina office. I've been with the firm about eight years, and I have a primary focus in insurance, specifically in captive insurance and in construction. And I'm here today to speak with Robert Miller. Robert, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, Hey, Scott, this is Robert Miller. I am a partner in the Montgomery office of Car Riggs and Ingram. I've been in public accounting for a little over 25 years. I have a focus in insurance taxation, uh, as well as I work with numerous uh, small, medium-sized businesses, uh, mostly a lot of local practice type thing. But uh, I am an insurance tax partner with the firm and primarily focused in the captive world. Thanks, Robert. So just to start things off and give people an idea of, of, of what we're talking about today, because not everybody may be either an insurance professional or, or have exposure to that area, uh, and even more people may not have a full accounting for what captive insurance is and what captive insurance means. So what we're talking about to start with is Captive insurance is a form of insurance whereby a small insurance company, which we refer to as the captive, is primarily owned by the insureds. So basically, that group is writing for primarily the owners or uh, or group of owners. However that however that shakes out, but uh, essentially the actions of that small insurance company are controlled by. The, the, the entities being covered by the insurance primarily. In particular, there's a subset of that that we refer to as 831B captives. Uh, that 831B is, as it sounds, is uh, the Internal Revenue Code section reference referring to insurance and how insurance is taxed. So, um, I don't want to get too hung up there on on the number and lever for fear of sounding like we're talking about a serial number for a fax machine, but um, but it does matter in the context of the conversation we have today because our topic at hand, where we're talking about the IRS's focus on captives, is primarily related to these eight thirty one B captives, which can also be called micro captives or small captives or things like that. So. Um, this is an area that's been at times in the IRS's dirty dozen list. Uh, they've been looking at this for quite some time, even though captives have been around in our country since the 70s. So given all that context, Robert, one of the things we know is that the IRS is on a winning streak in the tax courts. Could you talk, tell us a little bit about what they've got going on there? Yes, Scott. So since 2017, the IRS has won uh, four tax cases related to uh, micro-captive insurance. 
these cases have, at least in my view, had fact patterns that made them primarily fairly easy for the IRS. They were not uh, main insurance companies that were not operating as such. Um, that's an important part of being a captive insurance company is to act like an insurance company. And there, there's been issues with that. None of these cases have met any of these various safe harbors that have been established over decades of cases related to captive insurance. The other cases have primarily been larger captives, uh, whereas these are in the micro captive world. And these, the micro captives uh, for 2020, I think the premium threshold was $2.3 million. And that's for companies that are basically insuring uh, related entities. So so the four cases you you reference there, right? We've got the Avrahami case, the reserve mechanical case, the Syzygy case, which is about as hard to say as it is to spell. And then most recently, the Kaler Land case. Is there any common thread we can we can draw between these? Is there anything we can look at and say, okay, these are things that the IRS thinks is okay. These are things that the IRS just really doesn't like. What are these cases telling us about how they're viewing captives? So the, the first case, the Avrahami case, was back in 2017. And in that case, as well as all three of the other cases, they established that there was no risk distribution. And risk distribution is uh, basically the law of large numbers. You have enough independent uh, exposure units, in which case no one claim or no few claims would take down the whole group in itself. So in the Avrahami case, uh, they said there was no risk distribution. Avrahami was part of a risk pool. In, which is a group of insurers that basically they pool their funds in order to take a little bit of risk from each other and uh, in order to create risk distribution. Um, and the IRS, that is one of the common threads. The first three cases involved risk pools. And the, the issue becomes is there's no determination that in some of these risk pools that you're actually not just taking back your own risk. Uh, if you're putting in $500,000 of premium and taking $500,000 of risk. And if, and in some situations it's, it's limited to your only your risk, then it's understandable that that may be an issue from a risk distribution standpoint. Gotcha. In the cooler case, uh, they did not participate in a risk pool and they were trying to use enough uh, independent exposure units within their businesses themselves to pass the risk distribution test. In all the other cases, the courts have said that exposure units are a method of reaching risk distribution. However, in Kaler, there just wasn't nearly enough independent. Gotcha. So, so really, you know, the big thing we learned about where the IRS is looking when, when it comes to these risk pools is they just want to make sure that captives out there are not putting their risk essentially in, in the washing machine, sending it for a spin and getting their own stuff That's back exactly. out. Right. So then with Kaler, they just couldn't find enough that the, uh, that the courts felt like could, could support that they were actually achieving risk distribution, right? Correct. And, and there's, and the independent exposure units uh, has passed 
the tax courts tests in the past. There was a uh, the Renna Center case several years ago. It was based purely on independent exposure units, but with a company such as Renna Center, you can imagine the tens and thousands of pieces of property and and the employees are depending on what all kind of risks are involved. But a local business would have a hard time achieving such. Although I believe they did say in, I think it was the Kaler case, that they do recognize that in, in, in a micro captive or a smaller captive that there could be a smaller number of exposure units, except that in Kaler they just simply didn't didn't even begin to touch whatever that number might be. And there's been no establishment of any kind of safe harbor to help us with this. It's just, it's all mercy of the court at this point. If they could, if they could give us some parameters, it would make it a lot easier. I mean, just give us, tell us what, what we need to do. And if, if we can fit, if the situation fits, it fits. And if the situation doesn't fit, then somebody doesn't go down this path and end up like one of these cases. Right. Gotcha. So as a counterpoint to all this as well, uh, we've got the CIC services case that just went before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of CIC services. This is in reference to their challenge of IRS notice 2016-66, which created a reporting requirement for captive insurance companies filing the 831B election basically requiring them to file a lot of information with the department on who the owners are and things like that, a a tremendous amount of information. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of CIC. So what does this mean in the immediate context, Robert? And then what do you think this also means in terms of the future of the case? Since it's not done, it's just one piece of it. But uh, but the future of where this goes next. So CIC filed, before they got to the Supreme Court, they went through a few filings. They withdrew a filing, refiled, had some filings thrown out. And, and at that point, that's, that's what led them to the Supreme Court situation. And they were fighting against the IRS's uh, that the case has escaped him, but I think it's. I think the premise of the case was essentially that they didn't actually have grounds to file the case because it was not. I think the IRS was arguing that it wasn't actually a tax, whereas CSC's position was that it was a de facto tax. Right. The, the IRS, the law says you cannot file an injunction against the ability for the IRS to collect tax. And that's what the IRS was claiming they were trying to do. But in fact, they were trying to make the IRS go through the proper channels, not just say, okay, all of you people have to start filing these disclosures that are very onerous and include extreme penalties uh, for not f- properly filing. And, and, and in fact, CIC was was wanting to, or at least that's, this is what they want on the ability to say, well, no, you, you, you need to ask for People, you need to get some disclosures out to and get feedback from the taxpayers and the profession before you can just, you know, wave a magic wand and require all these significant filings. So with that said, where we are now is really no different than where we were before the, the ruling came <laughs> out. Uh, right. Except that CIC still has, you know, they're going to have to go back to a lower court 
and, and continue the process. So there's still there's no change in whether we should have filings or not related to the the notice from 2016. And, and as much as I would love to speculate with you about whether we think they will be successful or perhaps not, probably for a different uh, different time, different discussion where we where we sort of speculate on that. I don't know that we're really in a position where we can do that, although we are very much interested in, in how that case goes and, and certainly the outcome, since really it looks like the Supreme Court just told him, okay, yeah, you can make a case, go make your case now. So very, very interesting there. Also, Robert, I think there's some, some new developments coming out of the IRS as it relates to captives, because it looks like as they've created their team and they, they've, they've widely publicized this in a variety of letters and communications with taxpayers and, and, and press releases, they're creating something new in addition to that. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What, what it is, what it, sure. what it looks like? What- yeah. So back in April of this year, uh, the IRS announced that it was establishing a new, what they call the Office of Promoter Investigations. And it is specifically focused on abusive micro-captive arrangements. And again, when we talk about micro-captives, we're talking about those that have made that 831B election, which means they can only uh, write premium up to, I believe it is now at $2.4 million for this, this tax, 21. Uh, but that's what their specific focus is. And it's going to be a part of, or it is a part of the uh, IRS's small business and self-employed division. So just by the name itself, they're not going after large, large companies here. And, you know, I'm making some presumptions here, but I, I can pretty much presume that most every large corporation that you could think of in this country has a captive insurance company. That's not necessarily a micro captive, but Nonetheless, the micro-captives will be falling under the small business and self-employed division. Uh, with that said, they also have the ability to work with large business and international divisions, tax-exempt divisions, fraud enforcement divisions, and the criminal investigations division. So this promoter investigations office has a fairly broad uh, range of where they can go, but they are looking for those promoters of these micro captive arrangements. So that's that's pretty significant because they've moved beyond just looking at the tax paying entities, but they're they're looking at some of these groups that are out there promoting, trying to, I guess, in convince people to start captives or join captives and things like that. So how how do they hope to do that? What do they hope to target there and 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 how do they intend to approach that? Are they looking at sort of the business practices or or how how is that do we know enough now to say what they're gonna look at and what they aren't gonna look at? I don't know that we know enough, but with all the disclosures that have occurred over since the 2016 filings, they have a, a, a ton of information. It would seem to me that that would give them the ability to to start linking promoters, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, so that would I would think that they could look at these uh, to see who might have been related to the 
situations in the cases they've already had. And they could go very easily go find some other entities that have used some of those advisors and follow that path. And, and uh, you know, a great deal of it is trying to, I don't want to say scare people, but just make people aware that the IRS they, is they, they didn't come to play around. Right. They, yeah. They're, they're serious in this, in this, uh, dealing with all this, they have, they have absolutely created, I guess, a laser focus on going after these small related party captives. So with, with that said, what happens after they're done with the small related party captives? Do they go after the larger captives? Cause at the end of the day, all these entities are trying to qualify as insurance companies. Um, and uh, whether we're talking about risk distribution or exposure units, how many related entities that a company may try to insure if they apply some rules to it and then they can win in the courts, then why, why couldn't those rules apply to a larger entity? Uh, so maybe they are going to go after the bigger fish some point down the road, but right now they're definitely focused on the, on the small, the small entities uh, insuring related parties. So, I mean, I, I would say if you, if your company is involved with a micro captive at this point, um, it would be wise to seek advice and determine whether you think you could withstand the uh, exam process with the IRS. And, and, that, and, and that's a lot of what they're advising people as well, although in a little more threatening language. And, and Robert, I know you and I have ad- advised some folks together on, on, on similar matters as well in the past. So if people need it, we can certainly be there to help. But However that works out, it sounds like it's it's not hard to foresee some additional litigation activity coming in the future, particularly as it relates to this new program. Robert, thank you for joining me this afternoon. It's great to talk with you. Absolutely, Scott. I enjoyed it. And thanks to all of our listeners. We appreciate your time. We appreciate you tuning in and listening to the It Figures podcast here by Car Riggs and Ingram. You can check us out on our website, CRICPA.com. You can find us on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you need to find us, we can be there. Thank you for your time and have a great day. If you want more CRI insights or are interested in learning about our firm, please visit our website at CRICPA.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of It Figures, the CRI podcast. You can subscribe to It Figures on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review. 